At This Is The City, we strive to provide the story of downtown Los Angeles for all of our listeners, but we can't do it without you. If you enjoy our work, please consider donating on our website. It's easy to do via PayPal, and it helps us cover the costs of producing the show. You can also help others discover the show by sharing us on social media or leaving us a review in iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. From downtown Los Angeles, this is The City, a podcast focusing on the politics, art, and culture of Los Angeles. I'm your host, Garen Kelsaw. This week, we have an extended chat with Assemblymember Miguel Santiago, representative of the 53rd District, which covers all of downtown and the Arts District. And I never thought I'd be in office, but I had an interest in politics as it, improve, as it relates to improving communities, making change. And it's time for Neighborhood Council elections in Los Angeles. We'll give you some insight into their creation and how you can get involved. First up, let's talk to Assemblymember Santiago. Elected in November 2014, Miguel Santiago succeeded John Perez, Speaker Emeritus of the Assembly, as representative of California's 53rd Assembly District. Santiago, a former staffer for the Speaker, handedly won the contest and was subsequently elected Majority Whip. We spoke to the Assembly member in his Sacramento office to learn more about his background, being a downtown resident, and the work he wants to do as an elected official. This is The City. I'm Garen Kelsaw. Joining me on the line now is the assembly member for Area 53. How are you, Miguel Santiago? I am doing great and I'm enjoying every moment of it. Thank you for having me on. Oh, man, it's a pleasure. You know, I've seen you around the neighborhood so much. Not only are you, you know, our representative in the assembly, but you are definitely a resident. And I see you at large hanging out in the neighborhood. So it's really a pleasure to have you join us. How is it being, you know, the assembly member representative for downtown with its growing vitality and and bustling energy? Well, I got to tell you, I love it. If you take a look at what's happening in downtown Los Angeles, it is unmatched in the state what we're doing. Uh, We're completely improving our urban uh, landscape. If you take a look, for example, all the new buildings going up, um, all the entertainment, this is a place where you can now live, work, and play. And as some have quoted, the downtown renaissance is strong and alive, and I'm just happy to be part of it. Absolutely. And and as I get that same feeling, you know, here, just being a part of it right now is this incredible energy, you know, swarms around us. And the other thing that I like when I see you is that you're a very dedicated parent and a downtown resident as well. So what are some of the great things about being an urban parent and some of the challenges that you find as an individual being a parent? Well, some of the great things, quite frankly, is that, is that you really get to explore um, your surroundings with the child. And, and, and I'll tell you this, because this is what's good about being downtown. I walk everywhere. And, having, and being able to walk everywhere and experience this with your child. And a guy like me takes a walk to um, Grand, the, the Grand Central Park a couple times a week. You know, I, I land on Thursdays, I pick up my child, we go to the park, Fridays we do the same thing, and then we just explore. Because downtown is a real cultural, uh, diverse area, too, because we've got Little Tokyo nearby, we've got the Arts District, and we're, and we're just a hop skipping away from Bowl Heights and Chinatown. So those are the things that we're generally doing. Um, and, and so I think this is a great opportunity for my kid to really learn about different cultures and really experience a downtown area. And look, he's only... Two years and eight months, but I could tell you, I could tell this. He loves downtown. And I could see him staying there for some time. <laughs> now, we do have, 
Well, look, we do have some challenges, right? I mean, we have challenges like like most areas. What's what what's really unknown about my district in some cases is that we're actually the third poorest district um, in the state of California because of the rest of the areas that I include, and there are some challenges that that come with that. Um, for example. There is, an, there is a little bit of pollution. Um, it, it is difficult with traffic. Um, and then we're a poor park area. We don't have very many parks uh, when you're landlocked like we are. Uh, those are challenges. And look, our school's got to keep up. Um, and, and so we're going to do everything we can to, to address those issues. Yeah, absolutely. And with the growth of any neighborhood comes these challenges as well. But I also know that you happen to be an avid cyclist. I I follow you on the Internet a little bit and see you uh, (laughs) heading out to Long Beach as well. eh? Absolutely. I love to get on my bike. Uh, Sometimes I'll drive over to Weir Narrows. Sometimes I will cycle over to Weir Narrows and then take the river path over to Long Beach and back. Uh, I used to cycle a significant amount. Uh, Now that I'm in the legislature, I... I, uh, table my ambitions in cycling to one time a week, 50 miles. I love it. And, you know, and I'm really excited that in, that in my district, too, we're starting to see dedicated bike lanes. Uh, we're starting to see folks you know, get on their bikes and, and do things. And Cyclovia certainly has helped to, to change our culture that we don't need to get into a car. So absolutely, I'm going to continue doing that as long as I can. Yeah, that's what I wanted to kind of ask you about. What do you think uh, we can do as a community to increase that biking infrastructure, make it a little safer here in downtown? Sometimes people do worry uh, about the speeds uh, of of the cars and and also the culture itself of the car culture. As we know, downtown as an enclave is so walkable and bikeable, but the people coming in from other parts don't necessarily know that. So I want to know what your position on kind of communicating that and moving that forward is? Well, I think the responsibility falls on both parts, right? I think the the uh, car commuter or the person in a car um, really has to be uh, cognizant of what the rules are and, and how dangerous it is to get close to a bicycle. Uh, and, and I think we've got to do a better job in terms of uh, local municipalities of putting signs up, you know, uh, the lanes, uh, the painted lanes, um, and other things that, that advise a, a uh, a commuter in the area that not, might not be from our area that we actually share our roads, but from a uh, from a bike user standpoint of view, I think we've also got to follow the rules and understand and respect the vehicles around us. You know, if we've got a bike lane, we've got a state of the bike lane. If we're gonna, we've got to make the decision as to whether we ride in the center of the street or, or on the side of the street, and we've got to use hand signals as well. And look. Some of it's common sense, too. I don't know that cycling at night's the best thing to do, so I probably would hesitate to do that. But there's other ways to get people out of cars in downtown Los Angeles uh, that exist currently. Look, we've got the dash. We've got buses. Uh, we can walk places. Uh, we've also got a subway system. Um, and in the future, we'll have, we'll have a little bit more of that um, as we're starting to see some of it develop. But I think we've got to just get comfortable with understanding that we can walk places and we can walk back. I do it all the time. Look, uh, luckily, luckily, my kid's still at a young age where we've got a stroller. And sometimes we'll walk over to the supermarket, put things in a stroller and walk back. Or you yeah. just have to change the way that you live. You get backpacks, you get different things. It's not uncommon that you'll see me walking back with a backpack pack and I've got milk in my backpack because that's what I'm getting for the kid. But we just got to change that culture and make it cool to walk and be outside of a car.
Yeah, your your life very much parallels mine. I will say, as, yeah. a, as a parent downtown, <laughs> like going to get stuff, throwing it in the stroller, and heading back home is is a way of doing things. I'm and, full of bags all the time, man, because that's what you use to, you know, to carry things. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and looking back, uh, to take a step back for a second, I was doing a little background research before we talked, and I I saw that you kind of were split between going to seminary and entering politics, like a little earlier on, and I want to know if you can tell us a little bit about that yeah absolutely and i think um i credit my my strong um my strong faith in god uh to my parents really because since i was a little kid um they did just uh they just involved us in every aspect of the church we weren't only the uh Sunday kind of uh, kind of uh, religious believers, but we were the kind of people that were there on Wednesdays, Thursdays. Uh, I volunteered on the weekends. I did retreats, and I kind of grew up that way. Now there was a period of time when I went to college and maybe not was not as close to to a church and didn't participate as much, and, and that's typically normal with most folks. But well, upon graduating after that, I felt a real strong. I need to get, continue to get connected, and I and I went into grassroots organizing and was assigned to a parish um, at the time. And and during that period of time, I really really contemplated going to the seminary. I started I started talking to my pastor about it. I I, I signed up for some of the programs, um, and and then really through through a long discernment process. Um, decided it was probably not the best path for me. Uh, certainly I would encourage others to do it, but I don't think it was the right thing for me. And I was really torn apart by a couple of different things. Uh, number one, um, uh, my, my faith and in, in what I wanted to do. Number two is I, I really, really um, had, a, had an interest in, in politics. And, and I never thought I'd be in office, but I had an interest in politics as it, impro- as it relates to improving communities, making change, uh, making things happen, uh, imp- and helping working class communities. This is really where it started. And, uh, you know, one, one little secret out there, too, I also love teaching. And I wanted to go into teaching, and I was torn apart on all these issues. At some point in time, I reconciled that you can do all these all these things at the same time, and and one thing led to another, and I landed on a, on a community college board, um, and, and did some good things there. Um, if you see some of the uh, campuses around our district, like LA uh, Trade Tech, LA City College, or East LA College, they're completely uh, modernized and renovated over a bond measure that I passed uh, at three point five billion dollars, and and then I went on to the legislature, and then. Now here I am having this wonderful conversation with you. <laughs> and it's it's an amazing journey and I really was inspired by that because it sounds like you, you know, as you mentioned weren't really thinking about becoming an elected. It wasn't something that you felt was like in a pedigree kind of sense. It's something that you were drawn to uh as a regular citizen wanting to be involved and I think that's a great story to share. Yeah, and I, I never really thought so. Look, if, if I share a little bit about me and my background, look, my my dad came to the United States as a teenager, and like most immigrant um, parents, he didn't have his paperwork, is what they called it, so he was he was undocumented, and you know he hustled to find jobs and got paid under the table. And look, that's the story of 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 some Latinos who come to the United States, and uh, some years later, he brought my mom over. And they were undocumented immigrants here for a good period of time. Um, they had me, um, and then they'd returned uh, back to Mexico. So yeah, in some cases, you know, um, you might call me an anchor baby, but nonetheless, they went back to Mexico, and then came back, and then they had my brother, and, and we decided to stay here in the United States, or they decided for us. Um, grew up in Section Eight housing, and 
you know, really struggled. I think I was one of those ESL students that stayed, or stayed back uh, and had to study a little harder and work a little harder than the rest of the students. So for me to be in public office and now be sitting here in the state legislature and been appointed majority whip uh, by the speaker, I got to pinch myself sometimes. You know? <laughs> so I've got, a, I've got a sense of urgency to get something done and some passion um, and good people around me that, you know, I, I think over the next few years while we're in the legislature, we're going to get some good things done. And let's, wow, I mean, take a breath for, for that amazing, like, American story. If you're from Southern California or California at all, like, it makes a lot of sense uh, to all of us. But uh, moving forward, after you've completed your, you know, first year, we're able to rub elbows, like you said, elected majority whip. You introduced a bill uh, about waiting periods and handguns. And I also want to touch on, if we can, the recent announcement where you were present with uh, Senator Kevin DeLeon, who also represents downtown, uh, to address, you know, some of our homeless homelessness issues. Sure, absolutely. And look, I'll tell you a little bit about about the bill that we introduced Um and that's uh, AB 1674, and we titled it uh, Fire Purchase uh, Caps. And, and this is what it really tries to do. Uh, currently, it, currently in California, uh, handguns are limited to one handgun purchase per person per month. And this was done in 1999 at a time where, where um, gun violence was escalating, and, and it was assumed that handguns were really uh, the, the main usage in that. Uh, now we fast forward and we're at the day and we're seeing, we're seeing um, almost half of the gun violence using uh, long guns currently out of the ma- mass shooting. So if you take a look at the, I think the last 143 guns that have been, um, that, that have been uh, captured in the, in the last uh, series of gun, uh, sorry, mass shootings, uh, you'll see that half of them were, were long guns. So we're revisiting that to take a look at it because currently the law allows any individual to buy as many long guns um, as possible so long as they're, they're registered, so long as they do the, the 10-day waiting period. So hypothetically, you and I can walk in and buy 200 uh, long guns each. I'd, I don't see any good coming out of an individual uh, coming in and buying 200 or so guns, and some people might say that that's exaggerated, but but in April 2014, there was one registered um, case where an individual came in and bought 177 uh, long guns, um, while at the same time, they're only limited to one handgun uh, per month, and I just think, quite frankly, that it's absurd that anybody should need that many guns. Uh, and so we're in at, at the same time that we're seeing uh, gun violence escalate. So what we're proposing is to bring parity to the law and say one firearm per person per month. Um, and I think that's a that's a part, pretty common sense solution uh, to number one eliminating the amount of guns or reducing the amount of, of guns that could potentially land on our streets. And, and two, really quite frankly, to to prevent some of the gun trafficking. Um, no one needs to go in and buy two to three hundred guns uh, potentially, uh, and I just don't see any good coming from that. And uh, and I think the data is there, and and uh, that will support uh, why we need to reduce uh, the amount of guns uh, on the street. And I think the public will support it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And with. The other side of that, legislatively, uh, I do understand that you mentioned that you were looking to do some introduction of bills in regards to homelessness. It is, you know, obviously your district includes Skid Row. It's a huge issue here. It is something that, you know, residents face every day. So I wanted to get your take. What do you see kind of going forward for what the assembly can do and also in partnerships? You know, um, it's going to take 
several levels of electeds at government levels to make some some dents and some change here. So so what do you see on the horizon? Sure. And, and I'll tell you this. Um, I was one, one of, I think, two assembly members who partnered with the Senate uh, to roll out the repurposing of Prop 63. And I think that that's probably one of the uh, one of the larger lifts that we can do this year to address that, because I think one of the challenges, I think, uh, with addressing the homeless population, it should not be a secret to anyone, really, quite frankly, is how you fund it. And that really becomes a challenge. And even if it's one-time funding, it's not. It's a challenge to continue uh, to find resources to address this every year. Um, so I think the the what we're looking at is the uh, repurposing of Prop 63, which I which I uh, partnered on with De Leon uh, to do this. And what it would do is it would bring in two billion dollars uh, as a steady as a steady stream every year to be able to address uh, that population. I think it's modeled. What we're looking at is modeled under the. Um, housing first models that suggest that a person ought to have a home um, and then all the wraparound support services because, and by wraparound support services, I mean um, mental health care uh, services um, and, and substance abuse services and, and others that, that may be required because you can put somebody in a home without the wraparound support services and chances are we're not putting that, that person on the best pathway to rehabilitation. But at the same time, you can give somebody the wraparound support services and if they don't have a, if they don't have a home to sleep in, um, that's also a bit of a challenge. Um, and then currently we're also look, working with uh, L.A. County on, on some ideas. I think they're still in, in formation mode, uh, which will help us to, um, down the line to think more, a little more legislatively about it. Uh, and then we're also taking a look at um, how do you increase uh, the housing stock in Los Angeles. And we're, we're, we're playing with some ideas uh, currently now in legislative form. And look, some of these, some of these ideas uh, become bills, and, and down the line, you continue to work on them over the years, and, and you, you show some success over the years, because there's no doubt that there's a, a lack of housing in Los Angeles, uh, and there's no doubt that there's a lack of affordable housing, and I think we, we're going to do a couple of things to try to improve that. Yeah, man, it's definitely something that we've increasingly seen, um, you know, over the past few months and years uh, in downtown as affordable housing from all the people I've spoken to who are experts in it is one of the huge causes of the newer homeless people on the streets and and definitely great point to be made about housing first not always being the best option for everybody. And that does also lead to this cycle of uh you know, it almost like jail recidivism, but a cycle yeah. of homelessness recidivism as well. Yeah, there are some challenges. I mean, look, we're close to we're close to a jail system in downtown Los Angeles, uh, and people get released. And you know, the unique thing about it is, while they may or they may get mental health care services, substance abuse um, services while they're um, incarcerated, once once upon released, they're not there's there's no um, seamless transition into those services again, and. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes you end up in the same place, only now you're in downtown Los Angeles. Look, we've got so- somewhere between seven and 10,000 people living on the streets. This is an epidemic and a human crisis, quite frankly, that we've got worse than third world conditions in the middle of downtown Los Angeles. Um, I've been in office for about a year, and I can tell you now that, that I've, I've worked on this issue uh, through the budget process, and now we're looking at a legislation a little bit more focused on trying to address this. But this is a problem that's going to continue to grow in California, and along with homelessness uh, uh, crime, substance abuse, and, and mental health care issues in, in those areas. You know, there's, there's a number of things that that's going to cause, I think, that we've got to be able to address, too. Um, this is not a standalone issue that does not create other issues, and I think it's uh, paramount that we, we take a stand and we start working on that issue.
And before I let you go, we did touch on uh, this the question of, of release. Do you have thoughts that you want to share on AB 109, Prop 47, the realignment and release and how that affects communities, especially here in downtown? Well, look, there's no doubt that you've seen a, a, a uptick in um in, in certain categories of crimes uh, since realignment and, and since Prop 47, both of those things uh, before I got to the legislature. So, you know, I, I, when I talk to people about this, I always say, well, you can't turn the, the, clock, the clock backwards. That's not going to be an option. Here, here's where we're at, and now we've got to address these issues. And I think some of the, some of the solutions might be uh, some of the mental health care service uh, services that we do, some of the substance abuse, uh, but quite frankly, a lot of it has to do um, through education and rehabilitation because once somebody is released, we've got to be able to train people and put them on a pathway towards success or otherwise they're going to end up on our on our front porch breaking a window on a car. And so I think that those were I understand why why the legislature and the governor pushed those things uh, some years ago, but I think now it's upon it's upon us to be able to push through uh, some of the dollars for the programs that are much needed uh, since uh, both realignment and uh, Prop 47. Uh, but there is something to be said too about keeping every, uh, keeping individuals in prison um, because I don't think that's that's a solution either. And locking you can't you can't create better communities by locking everybody up, and that, that's that's a fact. So. Now we've got a, uh, a situation where, where people are going to be released early, and we've just got to fight for those dollars to ensure that, that they're on a pathway towards um, success. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Miguel Santiago, the Assembly Member for District 53. Thank you again, man, for joining us. No, thank you. And this is a wonderful show, and I, I hope to participate um, over and over. And uh, if you see me walking down the street, uh, make sure you say hello. And, Garen, I'm going to check you out next time you're walking with a backpack of milk. <laughs> Take care, my friend. All right. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much to Assemblymember Santiago and his office for setting us up. More from This is the City after this. First Sundays is DTLA's Community Brunch, a gathering of residents, friends, and stakeholders for food, drinks, and conversation. And everyone is invited. For March, we're headed to the Escondite, downtown's favorite hideout hangout. Join us Sunday, March 6th at 410 Boyd Street in downtown LA. Los Angeles's large geographic area and population lends itself to being a challenge to govern. In 1999, the city charter established the Neighborhood Council System and the Department of Neighborhood Empowerment, which supports the neighborhood councils to promote more citizen participation in government and make government more responsive to local needs. Here in downtown, the Downtown Los Angeles Neighborhood Council, or DLANC, is comprised of 27 seats, and they're all up for grabs in this year's election. The board of directors is broken down by stakeholder categories, seven geographic areas, or by sector of interest, including residents, business interests, arts, cultural, and educational interests, social service providers, and workforce. We talk a lot on this show about community engagement and what it means to be a true participant in our city. As you may be able to tell, I love this city deeply and I care about its future. That's why I'm announcing my own candidacy for Neighborhood Council, and I want you to join me. And I'm saying that not just asking for your vote, but I'm asking you to take part, whether you want to run, attend meetings, or become part of a committee. Head to dlank.org election 2016 
to find out how to register to vote or sign up as a candidate. Our neighborhood is strong, growing, energetic, and resilient. It is made better by the diverse voices who live, work, and play here. I believe that we will all do better if we stick together, DTLA. Thank you for joining us this week on This is the City. Join us next time for more of the politics, art, and culture that make Los Angeles. And be sure to check out our other shows, Eat Drink Podcast and the Word at Large Podcast, for more about what to eat and drink when you're downtown and celebrating the art of words. This is the City is written and produced by me, Garen Kelsall, and my partner, Jonna Sosnowski. Our theme music is by Taj Simmons. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. We're on Twitter at This is the City LA or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash This is the City. Send us a message or leave a comment. Let us know what you think and what you want to hear on upcoming episodes. Until next time, be well.